0: Welcome to this 15th edition of Free Speak, a podcast of the Namibia Media Trust where we discuss all things media. I'm your host, Gwen Lister. What can be done when public trust in media is severely eroded and what are the consequences for democracy? It seems this worryingly negative trend across the continent in recent years may currently be in reverse, but it's too early to celebrate yet because of very complex African attitudes to freedoms, notably press freedom. This, according to the findings of Afrobarometer, a pan-African series of national public attitude surveys on democracy, governance, and society. Here with me to talk about some of the findings is my guest for this podcast, researcher Christy Kilder, who heads the survey warehouse which conducts the Namibia assessment. Welcome, Christy. And thanks for making time to delve into some of these critical issues.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me.
0: So, Christy, I'm sure that most people have heard about Afrobarometer. But just in case they haven't, and before we dive into the issues at hand, perhaps a multi-pronged question and take what you want to answer. Why Afrobarometer in the first place? Secondly, do public opinion surveys across 36 African countries matter? And most crucially, are governments listening to what the people have to say?
1: Yeah, as I said, thank you for the opportunity to talk a bit about this survey. Uh, the Afrobarometer uh, started in 1999, so last year was the 20 year celebration of the survey. Uh, we've completed round eight uh, of the survey, so it doesn't happen every year, but there's sort of a, a two year rolling gap. Mm-hmm. Um, it started off with only about 12 countries. Okay. Um, uh, when three researchers came together, one from that was interested in East Africa, one in Southern oh. and then Western Africa, and that sort of uh, got all put into the same pot and that kept on evolving. Uh, from early days, the Afrobarometer benefited from the insights of various other global barometers. Um, there was the European uh, barometer that continues today uh, Martha Lagos's uh, Latino barometer. Uh-huh. Uh, there was eventually a new democracies barometer done in Eastern Europe by Richard Rose and then uh, also an Asian barometer. So we've been part of that process right from the beginning. When we started, there were all these complaints that Africa cannot be studied using this kind of methodologies mm-hmm. that Africans themselves weren't capable of conducting these surveys and doing proper analysis. So for many of us, uh, this is a—it's per- almost like a personal victory in getting to where we were, um, of, or, or coming from where we were. Uh, in Right in the beginning, I think around 2004, we've been voted the best uh, international data set by the American Political Science Association, Excellent. which was a first for, as I said, a continent where they said you can't do it, and a continent that wasn't capable of doing it. Um, over time, our influence has spread. Uh, we are today delivering data for many uh, multinational agencies that compile governance indicators, such mm-hmm. as the Mo Ibrahim Foundation. Right. Um, we provide data to Transparency International for their global corruption uh, project. Um, and yes, African governments are listening to us. It differs from country to country. Sure. And sometimes it's the skill of the individual investigator, um, personal connections. Um, but yes, even here locally, um, I found that the, the, the reception to Afrobarometer data has changed a lot over 20 years, and for the better.
0: So there's definitely progress in that regard. That yes, it's no, becoming absolutely. more acceptable. Absolutely. Christy, um, from the start, as you say, when Afrobarometer began in 99, there seemed to be a groundswell of support for something like press freedom. Um, But this began to decline, according to your survey, from about mid to late 2010. Why do you think people across the continent began to lose faith in journalism and start really to devalue the importance of press freedom? What happened?
1: It's a very complicated matter. I think there is no single explanation that will explain all the trends across the continent. I think there are particular explanations for particular cases. Uh, Locally, we know, for example, that uh, support for restrictions on press freedom are more likely to come from older Namibians, uh, people with lower levels of education, people that live in rural areas. Mm -hmm. So if you put all those kinds of variables in place, then you have an explanation for the social Mm -hmm. phenomena of modernization. So as modernization continues to grow, so it seems press freedom or support for press freedom continues to grow. Um, Whether um, people necessarily encourage government to restrict freedom, I'm not so sure. Uh, they might say that, yeah, there might be a possibility or, or uh, they might prefer an option where people government would lay more restrictions on the media. But I think once government starts banning and they see the implications of it, they will protest. I think we become almost like flippant sometimes about our freedoms and right. what they really right. mean.
0: Take them for granted. Yeah, know.
1: and I think uh, political tolerance is also continuing to grow. Um, I think the the idea that we have to tolerate people that sometimes carry messages that are very offensive to us even mm-hmm. um, we have to learn to deal with it rather than simply to abolish it right you know uh, I always use the example of um, if banning things or restricting things are are often intellectually lazy exercises. Right. It's like you know our elephants that come out and then suddenly appear in an area where they present problems. So we declare it a problem animal so right. that we can shoot it and by that we want to solve the problem. But we're not solving the problem. Uh, the next elephant will break out and so on. So we have to learn how to deal with it. And that takes thinking and that takes commitment and that takes sometimes emotional stress. All those sort of things we often try to avoid. So when, I think when people are saying they do support an option where government can have bigger restrictions, it may be that um, new issues have come up, mm-hmm. issues which challenge them politically, mm-hmm. socially, mm-hmm. Uh, religiously, uh, and that they might sort of reconsider once they see the damage that can be done to rights by simply banning things.
0: Right, because in a way what you're saying is sometimes from the negative comes a catalyst to remind people that, um, in fact, those rights are very important. Yes. And if we look at the trends of Africa Afrobarometer, it seems as though the the worm is turning, so to speak, around press freedom, and that in fact now people seem to be uh, realising, perhaps as a result of internet shutdowns and what's you know uh, taxes on social media, negative arrests of journalists, and so on, that somehow that acts to actually remind people, hang on. We need to care about this.
1: Absolutely. And I think experience is an important factor. Um, We find, for example, that countries like Namibia and South Africa that has no real experience with internal authoritarianism Mm. tend to be ambiguous in their support for democracy. Right. Right. So we might have a situation where Uh, and and, and this is definitely true in 2019, Namibians say Namibia, the vast majority of them, 75%, would say Namibia is a high-quality democracy because it's either a full democracy or a democracy with minor problems. But that doesn't mean to say (laughs) we support democracy. Right now, support for democracy is at its lowest level ever. Um, So that kind of contradictory positions Mm -hmm. do exist. And I Mm. think they're often natural as a society is trying to figure out which way to go. Countries that has been oppressed by their own governments are far more likely to reject any form of of alternative to democracy. Now, Namibians also say, we don't want a military government, we don't want a one-party state, and so on. But then they also say, well, Democracy is not the only option. Uh, sometimes a non-democratic system can be preferable. And what is even more concerning are those that says it doesn't matter which form of government, which Very is about one
0: in five wow. right now. Wow. Yeah. So people are quite clear on what they don't want, but not yeah. as clear on what they do. Yeah. Um, Christy, what does uh, Afrobarometer data tell us about where people, particularly the youth, most source their news and information? Uh, We kind of know that radio is still the most important medium across the continent, Um, and nearly 50% of people, I think, uh, the stats show um, access that. Television is more accessible to urban dwellers. So where in all of this does this leave print media?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's maybe not an either-or kind of situation. It's a situation where people could use social media Now, the way social media, I think, operates for gaining news or getting information about uh, sort of contemporary affairs is that it's often through a network of friends or acquaintances. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in that way, that network almost operates as an editor. They select what you hear or see and they forward it to you. And trust in that message comes from the sender your trust in that sender then becomes, or is transferred onto the message, which presents problems in itself. It's not to say that uh, social media or information on social media is always bad and always false. I think there are really good companies using social media for very good quality journalism. Right. Um, I think the, the issue with print is perhaps an issue of tools. What kinds of tools do people use to get information? I think there would always be a group of people who would go for print. Um, uh, I think, as a tool, print might not be the the most appropriate for younger generations. Mm. But that also means that print maybe have to sit down and think a bit. think they will. About, you know, possibly niche markets, possibly different kinds of approaches to traditional uh, uh, papers uh, in order to make itself a more applicable tool. And then I think there's always this issue of the business model of print, um, which is a very costly kind of exercise. Right. And maybe that needs to be re too in order for us to move into a direction where we don't have to lose any of the tools. Right. We just make them more appropriate for the task.
0: Right. I mean, as a print person myself, it always it's always a question I ask because... Printed so much for the liberation of the continent, if you like. So to see its demise is something that, that I can't almost contemplate. But Christy, on the question of internet access, all indications are that it's growing on the continent, although it isn't as big as radio. And presumably, this comes via mobile technologies. But there's still a huge divide, obviously, in terms of access between urban and rural dwellers. Um, and of course, women, again, have far less access than men. Do you think governments are doing enough to provide access, whether through bandwidth and or in terms of affordability? Because this does have huge consequences, both for literacy and e-learning, among others, Um, and particularly since schooling has become so problematic and inaccessible during this COVID-19 pandemic.
1: No, I don't think governments have done enough. And again, if I just speak about the Namibian government, I don't think there has been an urgency In trying to innovate around the the possibilities of of online I think the companies like banks are further ahead right Um, there is of course for every one of these uh, mediums there is a natural uh, what I think one can call a coverage bias the amount of people they can reach Um, and I don't think for example, something like print has the potential to reach everybody. Right. Um, it has its natural limitations, and that's okay, as long as we fill up the space below that threshold. Um, the same, I think, mobile technology has done a lot. It's bypassed computers, for example, completely. Sure. Um, so what governments need to do is to understand that its relationship with its customers depends on modern rather than traditional methods and that we need to innovate around that and create a space whereby uh, we can do a concerted effort and a coordination of of what needs to be done. Um, For example our legislative framework Mm. is really out of date and much of what can be done uh, cannot, is not possible here unless we change laws right? right and it doesn't help one ministry changes the laws and the other is not sort of filling yeah. up that space, or using those opportunities. If if we just take this current uh, COVID pandemic, and uh, just the management, the traceability of people, if you go to South Korea, it's all online. It's all Absolutely. electronic, it's all on mobile phones. Absolutely. And they had almost, well, it's relative, but they had little problems suppressing their pandemic. If you look at the US, who has the same kind of potential, but it's choosing not to use it's it. It's lovely, a nightmare. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's a nightmare. So I think when it comes to schooling, the U.S. is probably further ahead than many other countries. Um, but we need to catch up. It's, it's almost too ghastly to think that you might one day have a nation's kids going to school and all the school buildings are empty. Yeah. Unbelievable. Can you imagine yep. the kinds of worlds we can – or the things we could do in terms of saving on budgets, uh, the reallocation of those spaces and infrastructure? Absolutely. Absolutely. The kinds of problems we can avoid, kids having to school, walk to school all day, um, kids having problems concentrating because they're hungry. All that can go away. If we could provide circumstances at home and put enough money into this, it will take time. But I think whether we like it or not, that is the way it's going to go.
0: Mm. That's fascinating to to hear you say that. And I hope people are listening because I think definitely there's some great ideas there. But going back to COVID, which we're talking about now, all indications seem to be, Christy, that freedoms um, on our continent are increasingly under threat from governments which are using the pandemic to tighten their grip on power. Um, do you think this, again, we spoke earlier about catalysts, might be likely to further enhance public commitment to democracy and media freedoms? For example, I see Afro, Afrobarometer is concerned enough about this to be spearheading the Defend Democracy campaign, a hashtag campaign. Yeah.
1: Um, what do you
0: think? is this? I, I,
1: I, first of all, <sighs> COVID is not the only threat that's ever been to democracy. Governments are all the time trying to make their jobs easier and part of what they can do is to creep into the the, the space of individuals and try and remove certain of these uh, frustrating elements that rights uh, limit them on. I think we also need to unpack a bit of the the general statement. I don't think... um, uh, there may be cases where uh, specific governments are trying to do more. I don't think all the governments are trying to do it. I think uh, it raises questions about the relationship between states and their citizens, um, how much trust there is between the two of them, right. how much that trust can be converted into social capital, mm-hmm. how much citizens are, are uh, prepared to sacrifice or temporarily suspend some of their rights in order to serve a bigger purpose. Right. We have a responsibility, not just rights and freedoms, but we have a responsibility. So it is completely legal and common in democracies to provide for extraordinary circumstances where the government can then uh, ask citizens to to temporarily suspend or or, or, or restrict. Rights yeah. Um, And I think, again, if you look at the US, when citizens aren't prepared to do it, or even leaders aren't prepared to serve that common cause, it becomes chaos and havoc. So if you look at, for example, the the Swedish model, now whether it's more or less successful is not the issue here. It was simply the state going to citizens and saying, we trust you enough to do the following things. And the citizens said to the state, we trust you enough to want to do this, we understand that the information you're giving is correct and there is a bigger purpose. So in Namibia, for example, in the court case against the government now brought by the NAF and others, um, there was a case where government overstepped its 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 realm. Right. Um, it's issued instructions that was not serving the the purpose of the emergency. And the courts said you're out of line. Right. right? So yeah. democracy is one. I think the, the push and pull between citizen state for protecting rights and freedoms and, and serving a bigger
0: purpose is always there. It's always there. Yeah. Added perhaps uh, by the watchdog role of the media too. Absolutely, so, absolutely.
1: And courts, of course. Right.
0: Do you like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a podcast and subscribe to our Free speech podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. Christy, um, you mentioned earlier the ambivalence around some of the, the survey questions and answers. And, and I'm seeing quite an anomaly um, that while Africans seem to be ambivalent at best around issues of press freedom, for example, um, at the same time, they vociferously defend their own digital rights. Um, Wanting absolutely unrestricted access, and of course, we all know without going into that as a form of discussion, the disinformation, the repository is obviously the main repository thereof is on social media and online rather than in mainstream media. And then comes the question of the fact that what comes through the surveys is they trust mainstream media far more Mm. than they trust the information they get from social media and online in general. What, what do you think about this apparent anomaly? As I say, a freedom is good in one respect, but not in another. Yeah, I think... Uh, they're again, not making the connection.
1: Yeah, people. well, I, I also don't think one have to, has to put it in, in a kind of a binary...
0: Categorical,
1: uh, okay. uh, yeah. way. Mm. I think it's a situation where maybe there's been more done to try and curb social media or online media sources, as governments, I think, tend to think this is the new threat. Right. You know, citizen. Citizens can do all sorts of unholy things online. Mm. It's difficult to do it through a newspaper. That's so they've become perhaps more vigilant in trying to curb that kind of online. And especially after the Arab Spring, right, right where social media plays such a big part in coordination efforts. So maybe that's the reason why people are more um, aware of what happens to their social impact. media, media mm-hmm. rights. But I don't think people are, are necessarily saying we want online to be freer than, than traditional media. I think that it's more a concern with one uh, because of the perception maybe or maybe the reality that there is a bigger push to curbing that kind of freedom. Interesting.
0: Uh, Christy, also um, the surveys do show when it comes to disinformation, um, what I see some people have described as poisoning the well. of of online media um, that surveys show that the people think it emanates first of all from politics and politicians and political parties Um, but and I find this interesting and refreshing to note that they also see it emanates from themselves as individual social media users latterly government officials and lastly uh, media and journalists so that again for me show shows something quite interesting.
1: Yeah. I think everybody is still, in a way, trying to find their feet on social media. Right. And particularly locating sources behind social media stories. It's become, of course, very easy to hide identities or um, shield true intentions. I think this is sort of a concern with the front end of... of, of, of um, of social media, what is for me more scaring is what happens at the back end.
0: Uh, that's true.
1: The fact that some companies, governments, mm. organizations might get access to really comprehensive big data. Right. Uh, I mean, there's massive uh, projects going on worldwide. For example, to use um, psychometric um, experiments on this data to try and segment people according to, say, personality types. If I know that you are an influencer right all I have to do is put you in touch with a message and I'll know 67800 other people in your network will automatically message, believe what what, what you said yeah and exactly. you will be compelled to send it out because that's your personality right right
0: There's so those sort of things about yeah,
1: yeah yes and I don't think we understand and know exactly what happens at the back end um, and then the stories about, about Bell Pottinger and, uh, and Cambridge Analytics that came out is sort of a reminder of just how powerful this is. And yet every day we provide people uh, online with, with information about us, right? Um, uh, if you look on Facebook recently, they've started a project that will it says you should help um, I suppose some government agency to predict the next COVID-19 hotspot. Wow. Right? So <laughs> somebody's already using this information. Every like you've done, every picture you've posted, every message you've sent, every comment you make. Yeah. They understand
0: exactly how it works. It's amazing. Yeah. But that also said, do, do you think, I suppose, some form of social media regulation is inevitable because Twitter and Facebook obviously are actively promoting what they call their counter-terrorism efforts. In Europe, for example, these platforms are aggressively tackling online hate speech. Um, so perhaps, I don't know, going forward, especially in our African context, is it better that we focus on ensuring future regulation is just and reasonable and don't erode the freedoms we hold so dear, um, especially things like press freedom and free expression? What are your thoughts around this?
1: I think it's extremely difficult. On the one hand, um, there's the, the, the area of, say, social media that is under control of individuals, users, right. um, comments they make, pages they open, and so right. forth. And I think there has been a lot done in trying to clean up that side. Right. Um, I recently reactivated uh, a Facebook account, and I had to actually send um, my ID in you know, a copy of it. So there seems to be, and that didn't happen in the past, no. there seems to be, a, as a result of pressure on the companies behind these platforms, to try and, and clean that up. But there's the back end. No. Like, Always. where do we limit people on selling data? Correct. What kind of data are you allowed to collect and are you allowed to sell? And I think that becomes the problematic case. A country like Namibia may only be able to focus on the, on the front end the user's end, but they might not be able to regulate the back end because the data is collected here, but it's used there or, or, or assembled there. So it becomes really complicated. And also, I mean, there's this, um, I remember Larry Flint from Hustler magazine saying, I go to court to fight for freedom of speech so that the rest of America can talk. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and that's the sort of thing. What do we stop? If we start saying, let's ban this, what's next? On what grounds will we decide? Who that's will okay. decide Exactly. Um, simply because we don't like things. I mean, if you just follow the, 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 the story about um, reproductive rights that is, is very topical at the moment, we have not banned any party from marching, and that's how it should be. Even if people get in our faces, even if they um, promote ideas that is negative or unacceptable, we still need to find... Tolerance, we still need to find ways to deal with it other than to say you're not welcome. Otherwise, you know, today it might be you that's not welcome, tomorrow it's the next issue and so forth. And before we know it, we can't turn it back. So I'm a great believer in in educating society, promoting tolerance, rather than allowing us to start cutting things. Because the minute we start uh, pruning this tree, we might prune it too
0: much. And I think maybe on that note, it might be a good, good one to end off this very interesting discussion, Christy, and that is on the word tolerance, um, because it seems to me Afrobarometer, if nothing else, is telling us all how we feel about a range of issues across the continent, whether it be reproductive rights or gender issues, um, xenophobia, media how people feel, and and it's a very mixed picture, isn't it? I mean, in the sense that we have backwards and forwards on issues like press freedom. On the other hand, they're very progressive um, uh, ideas, especially in certain countries over others, about issues like tolerance of foreigners in their own countries and so on. So if nothing else, we ourselves as African citizens can learn a lot more from this perception, perception survey. And how we need to become more progressive, more de- democratic. Uh, do you think that Afrobarometer is becoming well enough known among the citizens themselves so that it can bring about some sort of change and more tolerance? And then, secondly, of all, to go back to the beginning and to say even our government have at times been intolerant about Afrobarometer and its findings. I think it was one of our ministers, um, Zafania Kamita, who attacked the the project a while back and said that, in fact, it was just promoting negative ideas about government. So how can we all, not only governments, but also citizens, learn from Afrobarometer? What can we do to get the information that you get from all of us down to grassroots Mm. so that we can make some changes?
1: Yeah. Well, let me start by saying the famous American political scientist, V.O. Key, once wrote that to speak about or speak with pre- precision about public opinion is a task not unlike coming to grips with the Holy Ghost. It's complex. It's, just,
0: it's very complex.
1: It's yeah. And and I think we often have this perception that individuals or groups have a uniform, almost like a value set, mm. you know, uh, that are all aligned and perfectly in sync. So if you're liberal on this, that you'd be liberal everywhere else. Exactly. And it doesn't work like that. Yeah. We are complex combinations of things. and There are very complex reasons why we might support one issue and feel negative about the next. I think over 20 years, and with just sustaining, rolling out good research, Afrobarometer has pretty much established it. Sadly, it is still funded from outside Africa, not uh, mostly. Mm-hmm. Governments have not seen the need to embrace it beyond uh, the, 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 the occasional interaction or the um, uh, often confrontational kind of... Uh. So there's no funding for the Afrobarometer coming from African governments or African NGOs, it's still a donor exercise, and that makes the project vulnerable. I think uh, a really positive thing has been that since Afrobarometer has also, from the start, committed itself to training African scholars, there has been a huge upswing in young African scholars doing research on their societies, doing research on their continents, and publishing it, and it's really good quality research. And that helps to embed this, give it sort of some kind of home within a society. Um, uh, and these young scholars, they're active on social media, the information gets out. I think for most part, and I'm not part of the Afrobarometer Organization, which has now reconstituted itself as a, as an NGO mm-hmm. located in Ghana. Right. With support from offices in, in East Africa in Kenya, and Kenya and, and, and in South Africa. Um, I think there has been wonderful opportunities if you go to the website, for example. um, The first seven rounds of data is available online for analysis. It's it's a really good tool to use. Absolutely. Organizations, individuals, it's for free. Um, So they've done a lot uh, in order to to make data accessible. Ourselves, we often um, do little information graphics or we use opportunities like this to speak about the project. Um, we try and get more and more communities and societies to embrace the data and work with it. So we'd often sit down with a group of organizations and ask about their needs and then see what we can mine from it. Um, So, but it's still, the funding issue is always a problem for these sides of projects, and as you can imagine, I mean, 36 um, countries. I I remember, you know, right in the beginning when we were looking at budgets and things, uh, people in Cabo Verde, but um, when I rent boats for field work, um, people in Mozambique would rather fly than drive because oh. of the dangers uh, on their roads, with landmines and things. It's just so different. But if you go and have a look, there are some clips where <laughs> fieldwork teams have submitted um, efforts that they've made to get uh, to the, the, the respondents. They believe, and I think they're right, that, we're giving ordinary Africans a voice that otherwise would not have been allowed to speak. Absolutely. So Perfect. field workers built um, bridges to cross rivers. They walk for days and sleep mm. in the field. So all these things are commitments made to a cause which I do believe the Afrobarometer has established, and that is a cause of allowing the continent to speak and finding an audience for it.
0: And as you said right in the beginning, uh, Christy, people did not or the international world do not believe Africa could do this. Yeah. So uh, it, I mean, it's taken a huge step forward. But more needs to be done in terms of research and creating that data from Africa, and not only to do it ourselves, but also to fund it ourselves. Yeah. So yeah. Christy, thank you so much for joining today. It was a fascinating discussion. And I wish we had another hour to carry on.
1: Thank you very much. And thanks for listening. Thank you.